Today's episode is about training at work, and the specific idea came from Ryan, one of our wonderful listeners in Knoxville, Tennessee. He raised the question about what's widely known in the training industry as the 70-20-10 rule, and we thought it'd be an excellent topic to explore. One part of this idea is that most of the learning that occurs at work happens informally and not through more formal experiences like those in the classroom. It's an idea that's intuitively appealing. But does this idea stand the test of science? Is there evidence for it? And if so, what does it mean for workplace training? If evidence for this idea is lacking, then what does that imply for people, leaders, and organizations? Keep listening, and we'll explore. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. So today, on the job training, fact or fiction? <laughs> That's the topic, and we're going to talk about this idea of the 70-20-10 rule and a review of the evidence for and against it, perhaps. We'll also talk about maximizing the value of on-the-job training and some implications for people, leaders, and organizations. So let's start with this first piece, which is this idea of the 70-20-10 rule and a review of the evidence of it. So first of all, what's, what's this all about? Oh, man. Once, once, anytime somebody says anything and then the word rule after it, <laughs> I'm like, I... I don't know, right? My skepticism meter goes through the roof you mm. know, because it's hard. Think of how challenging it is to just measure percentages and then businesses and, you know, yeah. you can only take a snapshot at time. So this this rule, quote unquote, is about some percentages. What, what What's it about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is that 70% or more of work-based learning occurs informally. And 20% comes from relationships, mentoring, coaching, those kinds of things. And then 10% from formal classroom training, which, right. you know, on the surface seems, okay, maybe so. I yeah. Well, and it does have kind of a natural appeal. It's like, oh man, yeah. You know, when I think back on my experiences, everything I learned for the most part was, you know, that on the job training, it was watching people, it was being told what to do by experienced folks. Uh, and then, you know, the, the stuff I learned in the classroom, you know, it, it just maybe yeah, companies aren't spending a whole lot on learning and development. They want me out there being productive rather than making my brain big, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's interesting because this idea, the 70, 20, 10 rule, um, you know, if, if you're not in the training industry, you may not have heard of this, but if you are, there's a good chance you have. And even if you're not in the training industry, then you've probably been affected by this idea in some form or another. It's funny, you know, I was just, we we're just doing a little bit of preparation for our conversation here today. And you know, there's even a whole Wikipedia page just on the 70, 20, 10 model. Um, and, you know, talking. So about I guess it. that means it, the Wikipedia page may not be reliable, but if it has a wiki page, it's <laughs> probably a thing, right? <laughs> probably. Enough people were interested in it to give it a page and to, to write some things in it. Um, and, and, you know, there is some intuitive appeal here. I'll give it some credit that, you know, it's like real experiences. And, you know, and I think there is some good um, evidence to suggest that, yeah, you know, going through tough times, going through stretch experiences, those are very important 
for our learning and for our development. And, you know, it's better than the sterile classroom. Um, but at the same time, it, it also suggests that formal training isn't that useful, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the, here's some of the thing. And I think it's intuitively appealing because, well, 70% of your workday or more should, if your boss is happy, be engaged in doing the work, <laughs> Yeah. right? So you, you're learning there, you know. You know, we look at the 20% coming from relationship, mentoring, and coaching. You you couldn't ever get to a 70, 80% of your day being mentoring, coaching. Sure. Now you can, you know, K through 12, or if you're in college or graduate program, close to 100% of your time might be spent in former uh, formal classroom training, education, that kind of stuff. But then, you know, like what I always say, it's, well, you, you can't read a book on boxing, you got to get in the ring, right? You right. know, there comes a time when no matter where you get that knowledge, watching somebody, because think if, I mean, what does that even mean, you know, on the job training? Okay, you and me are working on an assembly line, right? And I'm watching you. And then mm -hmm. I go do it. How is that different than going to a classroom down the hall, watching a video on how to do it? I mean, you got different mirror neurons going and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's still a block of instruction and then a point where you apply that knowledge. I think some of this on-the-job training type stuff gets mixed in that kind of confused milieu. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's important to recognize that, and we'll get into this more, that not all on-the-job training is created equal. Not all formal classroom experiences are created equal. You know, there's a great article that we're going to talk a little bit more about that comes from uh, the journal Human Resource Development Review. And it's written by Alan Clardy, who's a professor emeritus from Towson University. And, you know, he, he examines this specific idea of the 70-20-10 rule. Uh, and his article title is 70-20-10 and the Dominance of Informal Learning, a Fact in Search of Evidence. So the fact that he, he calls it a fact in search of evidence, you know, just by the title, you can see that he's slightly skeptical and uh, in terms of reviewing the evidence um, doesn't come up with a whole lot. And we'll talk more about that. Um, you know, and he traces all of the different ways in which this idea originated and kind of propagated in our thinking. Yeah. So anybody wants to make some money in consulting, come up with the, my secret sauce methodology. Mm -hmm. Hey, we've got the, my little pony for your organization. If you don't have my little pony, you're not even an organization. And somebody <laughs> will latch on. I know. Right. I mean, you'll start with why. Well, who doesn't kind of start with why, why are we starting this business? It's just, you magically showed up and profit, you know, like this, this stuff is, and to be fair to the consumers out there, the whole marketplace is flooded with this right. stuff. So if they if they're struggling and want answers, they don't really have a whole lot of places that the untrained person that doesn't know how to shop for this kind of stuff to go. So you can have the 70 20 10 rule. You can have the 90 10 rule. You can have start with why you can have. What is that tip? All the Maxwell books, tipping point blink. Yeah. Um, this stuff is exciting and it hijacks your mind with a story. Right. Right. But, oh, but once upon of, a time, but, somebody has a struggle. Right. Yeah. And then ta-da, the well, solution. No more struggle. But none of none of those ideas is as 
appealing as the My Little Pony model of leadership. And I, I think know that- I if it wasn't, <laughs> I need to get with Mattel or Hasbro <laughs> and and get it get co branded, right? <laughs> Watch for it. You heard it here first. All right. That's what happens so- when you have two daughters. Your brain goes to mush. But any <laughs> anyway, a fact in search of evidence. People will assert something. And we see this even in our broader political discourse. There used to be theories behind conspiracies, right? So you'd have like this fact led to that fact and the secret cabal goes to here. And, we, and you know, we've talked about conspiracy thinking in other episodes, you know, and then we get to this overarching thing. Well, now a lot of these people don't even provide evidence. They go mm-hmm. on TV, they go on these, you know, Ted, and they just say, this is so. And they don't back it up. Then they tell some stories. I've really seen a lot of narrative justification rather than solid justification. So 70, 20, 10, it's, it, there's just not a lot of evidence for it. Yeah. So, you know, it, I guess I'll cut to the chase here because uh, Alan Clardy in this article, he is fairly critical of this idea. Um, but first of all, I mean, he does review the literature where it comes from. He you know talks about popular practitioner articles where this kind of originated. Um, All of who don't say they have evidence and don't provide it or absolutely don't have evidence. There was a lot of bad faith in the history. Sure. And then he talks about some uh, reports from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which do have some evidence in there. But it's really interesting because it's very hard to break down in any kind of study. Okay, what counts as informal training? What counts as formal training? the, The devil is in the details on this type of research. Uh, He also talks about the Center for Creative Leadership and their materials, and there's a a whole line of research that really kind of came in communication about this idea that came out of them, because two of the um, main people who kind of came up with this idea, or at least were involved in its dissemination, were from the Center for Creative Leadership. And I don't want to badmouth the Center for Creative Leadership overall, right, because I know some people there, and I'm you know, generally very. No, I'll um, just say it was you know, intellectually lazy work. to put it out. You know, yeah, yeah. like so come I don't, on, guys. I don't, yeah, I think it. I think it took a shortcut um, that that wasn't congruent with a lot of the other work that they do. Right. So I'll I'll put it out that way. Um, there's a, a variety of you know some academic studies and reports that touch on this idea, and then he also talks about some different Canadian surveys on adult learning and what he concludes. Alan Clardy. Uh, is that the evidence supporting this idea of the 70-20-10 rule, that 70% of the learning that happens at work is informal, more on-the-job type of learning, that 20% comes from relationships, mentoring, coaching, and 10%, only 10% comes from info, or comes from formal classroom education or training, um, is just not, the evidence just really isn't there. Or at best, it's imprecise and it's scattered. So, you know, or he uses terms like very debatable conclusions. uh, Yes. So I love this. There's a quote that I just I want to read. Perhaps not. a Yeah. Read the read. Yeah. This this is a great quote from from the article itself. Um, You know, he says that the the 70 2010 rule, um, it's you know, it's, it's taken as a fact, but it's not justified very well. It's used to suggest that. And I quote. Formal training and education is at best a marginal contributor to employee learning and development, perhaps approaching the point of being a waste of time and resources. The prevalence of research drawn apparently independently from several different traditions supporting something like a 70% rule seems to simply confirm this fact. 
Yet the analysis in this article finds that the evidential basis of the 70% rule showing that informally learned ex- informal learning experiences and outcomes are three times that from formal training is perhaps not a fact at all. And then he goes on, I'm still quoting, and he says, human resource development policy and planning relying on this rule runs the risk of bad decisions based on a very debatable conclusion. All right, so um, based upon the evidence, probably not the best thing for making broad generalizations about how your organization does learning and development. Yeah. And, you know, then some of the later criticisms we're about to cover here are about like, well, did you implement the 70-20-10 rule right? Well, mm-hmm. what, you know, or how, what the question people need to stop and ask themselves is, what are we trying to do here? What if it was 30-30-34, you know, whatever the percentage is, would it matter? Like your outcomes and your quest for your goals should drive your decision making. So maybe people mm-hmm. need to start with why I guess on this one. <laughs> but but th- these are the things. So um so one of the things that from the um human resource development quarterly with what do we got? Johnson Blackman and uh, Buick. Um mm-hmm. they they talk about this transfer of learning and they suggest that learning transfer and managerial capability development was hindered through for misconception regarding the framework's implementation. So now they're saying, well, you're not doing this right. But that these are some decent thoughts here. And so those four misconceptions are the overconfident assumption that unstructured experiential learning automatically results in capability development, right? Like mm-hmm. that, hey, if people, hey, go on the job train, that somehow that person's really going to get trained. Yeah, right? not all experiential training is the same, right? We learn in different ways from those. And just having completely unstructured experiential learning is probably not the best way to go about it. Continue. Yeah, and, and it's a, a narrower interpretation of social learning, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, this is where we have definition. What somebody might call social learning might be another person's more formal learning, right? And the expectation that managerial behavior would automatically change following formal training and development activities without the need to actively support the process. So, you know, this is the idea where, hey, well, why aren't you, you know, I could just see the briefing. Hey, Lieutenant, why aren't your NCOs doing what they're told? I don't know. I trained them. No, you can't just train them and send them out. Go be perfect, right? That right. And so that's work. the idea. That's that idea of transfer of training. Right. So this is a, a a phrase that we use in the training world talking about actually, um, you know, if we're, if we're going through some sort of training experience, there are certain knowledges, you know, knowledge and skills that are supposedly uh, imparted during that process. Transfer of training is about actually doing that on the job, changing behavior on the job. And, you know, it, it, let's say we do a bunch of formal classroom um education and training in an organization and the military does a bunch of that sure. gosh and i let, can't tell assume... how many powerpoint things i've been through <laughs> let's assume that okay they went through all this formal classroom training they go back to their jobs none of the new behaviors the new skills the new knowledge is supported it's used managers are unaware of what the training was about you're not going to see much of an impact of the training, but it's not necessarily due to bad training. It's due to a bad environment that should have supported that training better. So, um, you know, if you 
assume that transfer training automatically happens, then you are going to, you know, come up with some some conclusions about the efficacy of that training that are probably suspect. So that's one of the misconceptions. Yeah, and this is the idea of practice. Hey, I read that mm. book on calculus. Well, did you, did you work any of the problems? No. Yeah. I, I go do some calculus. Man, I've slept five times since I read it, right? You know, it, that's just, everybody knows that that's just not how learning and being able to execute on knowledge works. And And the final piece is a lack of recognition of the requirement of a plan an integrated relationship of all three aspects of the framework. Yeah. And this this one I have a real beef because mm. it seems to imply that the framework is even worth a darn. Now, what, <laughs> what organization would not have a learning and development kind of systematic approach and process that would not encapsulate all three? I think there's plenty of organizations that do that. <laughs> right. And so, no, but like you that, that, need that do, to have all three. You do. Yeah. But right. you need to have all three. And this 70, 20, 10 is baloney because it's not based on, and we'll talk about like a needs analysis, that kind of thing. Right. And then just following up and learning from how, you know, one task, how to fill in your timesheet may honestly only take a, you know, a job aid printed piece of paper. Yeah. But changing out the carburetor on a Toyota Tacoma for a maintenance bay shop, if you have to take people off the street and train them, may need a more robust application of L&D principles. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I also think it's just, it, and this is this was brought up in one of these articles, I think it was the Clardy article, which of course we'll put links to these in the show notes to so check them out and read them for yourself, make your own conclusions here. But, you know, one thing that he, he brings up I believe that's is that article is you know some formal education and training is it's very difficult to quantitatively connect it with an outcome. So for example, you know before we started this episode, you and I Chris we were talking about the value of the humanities. This is what we do in the mornings before we, we talk about things like that, right? The value of critical thinking and all of that all of the the, the benefits that come from wrestling with issues of philosophy and you know the human story and, and all those different things that we get from the humanities now okay so it, it's beneficial for your critical thinking it's very difficult to measure that um you know in, in at least in a a short term type of context that most organizations are operating within with regard to learning and development so you know some formal classroom education may be amazing but you might not see the results of it for a long time uh, so that's that's another yeah, this is um, thing stuff. that's not this captured is, here. This is the art of being, right? Mm. And so, like, let's take music. Okay, well, this student can perform all these chord scales and arpeggios at, at this speed and is now a level four competent or whatever if you have, like, a leveling model to measure that, oh, this person can perform these tasks. But if you say, now go make me some music, well, that's kind of challenging, right? Mm. And it, it takes a while before a student can, say, improvise a solo or play music with some good interpretation and feeling. And it's the same thing. You get something in the classroom. Can yeah. you, and hey, right, Ben, you give tests or writing assignments and the writing assignments are kind of saying, you know, okay, the formal tests, you know, maybe multiple choices. Like, does this person have a concrete memory of what we talked about? And then maybe a case study of writing is assessing, like, are they able to integrate some of these hard facts and in solving a problem or talking about it? 
But then once you get out into the flow of business and organizations, you're making art every day with this kind of materials. And yeah. so well, I, I love that. So, that, you know, this idea of um, you know, so I have a Ph.D. in organizational science. Right. And we we, we value research to a very high degree. And I, I absolutely do. And I oftentimes think about or I have thought about the idea. There is also organizational art. And actually, right. in the military, when we talk about um, creating campaign plans, right, when we do war planning, there's a whole discussion and idea called operational art, right? And it's this idea of the creativity and the um, actual planning and execution of something that, that just requires a, a different level of doing that, uh, that is, is more complex. Anyway, this is... I think that's a discussion for another day. Really good stuff here. But one big criticism of this idea of the, the 70 20 10 rule is, you know, about the fact that not all on the job training or OJT, as we'll call it here, is created equal. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. I, I don't think the criticisms of the 70 20 10 rule mean that OJT is worthless. Like OJT can be awesome, but they do indicate, some of these criticisms do indicate that on the job training, needs a closer examination. And so that's what we're going to do here in the next section. We've talked about how this idea of the 70-2010 framework is fairly suspect in terms of the evidence supporting it. And it could be problematic when you're, when, if you're debating, you know, if you're using it to guide your entire learning and development program. Let's talk now about OJT and how we can maximize the value of on-the-job training. Yeah, and this is where I think your heads should be at, right? So the problem with the 70-20-10 model, in my view, is it's just a bogus lens. You can just look at your organization with open eyes and say, well, what do we need? And on-the-job mm. training is going to be part of it. Because let's be honest, you're like, here's the employee manual. You know, how many people only read that stuff when they're about to get in trouble, right? <laughs> Yeah, You know, it's like no smoking weed out on the shipping dock. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's in paragraph four, you know, no, no we're drug free zone. Like that would be a common one or something, but you know, you're not reading necessarily. You probably learn your time card from somebody. You go to security, they get your badge and you get to know which door you come in. That's all kind of on the job learning, on the job training. So let's talk about maximizing that. So first there's this idea of effective or efficient. Now, efficient training is like, all right, I emailed everybody a PowerPoint, walk <laughs> yourself through it. But yeah. maybe that's not the most effective. Ben, what do we think about when we think about effective <laughs> training? Yeah, so, I mean, when we talk about what, what the outcomes of training are, the most common way that we think about this and the most common way in which we oftentimes try to measure it is in terms of people's reactions to the training. Like, that's the first level. Uh, then we talk about whether or not they learned anything. Then we talk about whether or not it changed their behavior and then maybe some broader team or organizational results. So whether or not it actually influences behavior and outcomes is uh, kind of what we're looking for in, when we're measuring training effectiveness. Now, there's a, a great chapter in the, you know, one of, one of our favorite volumes, the Encyclopedia of Industrial and Organizational Psychology. Um, we such nerds. Gosh. Yes. I mean, the only reason that, <laughs> yeah. So I, I wrote enough, uh, I wrote three different entries for this encyclopedia a couple of years ago, and it was enough words that I was able to get a free set of the, vol uh, that, that was my main goal, right? Cause it's like several hundred dollars. So but, if I ever yeah. rob Ben's house, he's not missing whiskey. <laughs> He'll be like, 
Everett's been over here by missing my best. Yeah, no, you, you always you always bring the whiskey to my house. Sweet, um, but yes, true. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll know if you're if you stole my four volume set. But there's a great tra- training methods chapter in this um, in this piece, and I think there's some things we can highlight from that. Just about training in general. Just a reminder um, of what makes training effective. And this is a great thing. It was written by uh, Kurt Krager um, and Alyssa Marshall. And there are a few things. So first of all, some characteristics of effective training methods. First of all, it should provide training based on a needs analysis. You actually just mentioned this, Chris. You said we should look at what we need, right? And there's a variety of ways to do that. So based you'd on be the- surprised how ad hoc yeah. these trainings are. Oftentimes, and it's then like, oh, we have a disaster. Yeah. Oh, I guess we better go train on that. Oh, either that happens, or which is very common, or you'll see here's a training. It looks amazing. Let's just do it. Versus, do we actually need it? So, should start got, with the needs. It's analysis. got pretty colors on the slides. Like, it's it's, so let's do it. <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, okay, and then the next piece is about preparing the employee mindset. Right, um, discussing the the training in a way that helps people be interested, creates a motivation to learn helps build some realistic expectations. And the next piece is about clarifying what people should learn and how that information will be useful to the the people who are going through the training. Yeah, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier was behaviors. Mm. Most training I see out in, say, small, medium-sized business, there's some enterprise-level people that do this a little bit better, probably some mid-sized business, but a common faux pas is that they're only looking at skills-based training. Right. Mm. But, you know, when you're a manager, if you're going to train your managers, your directors, your VPs on stuff that their leadership and team leading skills, but there's also certain behaviors and um, taking a look at those behavioral outcomes and how you might train towards those. Um, We do this and some of the stuff that people do with competency model, you know, on a behavior list. One not doing so good would look like this. Mm. A five would look like this. A 10, somebody who's a superstar, their behaviors would look like this. And just thinking about the kind of behaviors you want to see in your orgs, you know, we kind of teach these colloquially through ideas like social shame, right? You Mm -hmm. know, you don't just belch out loud at your cubicle while cramming Funyuns in your mouth, you know? (laughs) That's that's not an okay behavior. That's like a social norm. But if you have business behaviors, team-based behaviors, meetings behaviors that you want, you need to actually think about, it's not just how do we log in and, and you know check our code into the code repository, that kind of training. There also needs to be some behavioral training elements here. That's good. You know, some other characteristics of effective training methods, it links the new training content to pre-existing knowledge or job experience of employees that helps for relevance. Uh, It chunks or organizes relevant information in a way that makes it uh, helpful to deliver. Uh, It also provides trainees with opportunities to practice the new skills. It provides constructive feedback, provides opportunities to observe others doing the new skills, provides opportunities for trainees to to form social networks with other trainees, right? To provide that common bond so they can learn together. It's like, hey, we're all ignorant together. Let's get not (laughs) ignorant on this now, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it also provides some support after the training. So those are some characteristics of good training in general. And I think we can take some of those and then think about them through the lens of on the job training or OJT, um, which is kind of the focus here. 
you know, this is this goes into that piece of informal training, that piece that is kind of assumed when people talk kind of at a surface level about the 70-20-10 rule to being the end-all and be-all and being uh, the most important piece. Now, we are not discounting the importance of informal training and on-the-job training. What we are suggesting is that it's not all great and there are ways well, to make it better. Well, and one of these things is just, is this accidental or on purpose? Do you want <laughs> everybody in your org, you're like, well, go do these things and everybody's self-organizing on some training? That could be one way to start. But mm -hmm. at some point, you want to go and observe and say, you know, if you have somebody that's learning and development, or maybe your COO, if you're a smaller organization, somebody to go say, what training's actually happening here? And is it to the quality and standards that we want as an organization? So, you know, coming from an agile perspective, you know, this massive top-down push sometimes isn't the best, but you don't have to take an either-or approach. You could have you know, maybe you didn't start your organization and everything has been informally done. Well, maybe you take a moment to, you know, come out of your office and go sit down and observe new employee onboarding or talk to some of the managers. Hey, what's some of the stuff you got to just teach on the job? Great. Could you snag me when you're teaching somebody? I just want to see what we're going. You might learn some things and you, it gives you an opportunity to maybe formalize some curriculum around the on-the-job training, where you can have those items that we meant, mentioned, like chunking, uh, a, a needs analysis. Is this informal? Hey, we keep having these quality errors over here. Oh, well, our on-the-job training stuff missed this important skill set. So let's make sure that everybody adds that to there. You know, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So on-the-job training, and this is, again, referring to the uh, chapter that I referenced earlier, uh, they define it as simply referring to assigning employees to jobs and encouraging them, them to learn by observation or direction from supervisors or more experienced incumbents. So the learning comes from the experienced people. But here's the thing. Do those experienced people know how to train? Do they well, know how to provide instruction? Uh, and that's, I think, the, the key element here. If we want to make informal training awesome, We've got to help them have the skills to impart it, right? There are certain things that I do extremely well, that you do extremely well, Chris, that we probably aren't the best at imparting that knowledge, but we're, we're good at it. So just because someone's good at it doesn't mean that they can necessarily teach or train it very well. Right. And so it's, hey, it's informal, but you can start to spruce up the quality. Um, one of those common terms that people use is train the trainer. Yeah. So if you know you got a bunch of people that'll be doing informal on-the-job training, putting them through, I'm going to use a big word here, pedagogy, uh, kind of 101, or even maybe you have formalized some of that on-the-job training type curriculum and can put them through it, they might learn something that improves their methods of passing this knowledge on to people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so what are some best practices with regard to on-the-job training. I think, you know, the first one is applying some of those characteristics of good training in general that I mentioned earlier to on-the-job training, making sure that there's some needs analysis, making sure that there's support for what's going on, making sure people are um, engaged, all of those items. What else? Um, well, yeah, just develop some, right? <laughs> Don't just leave have it some all. Structure. Yeah, yeah, have some structure. Um, there's conferences, there's online resources, uh, these kinds of things, you know, reach out, you know, when we say L and D that stands for learning and development, and there's a bunch of different names that people have used over the decades in organizations, but 
there are teaching professionals that know. And I'm going to throw this one out here as I've seen a lot of that L&D stuff, but I think a lot of elementary education professionals actually have more how to teach, how to develop curriculum and train skills than a lot of L&D people <laughs> that I, I've seen out there. So in a pinch, grab you one of those teachers, pay her a few thousand dollars, take him or her out to lunch and and get something that spruces up how you can develop a training program and especially one for your leadership that will because that leadership is going to be doing a lot of that OJT or supervising the quality of that OJT. Right. And just because it's informal training that's happening between supervisors, experienced employees, and the more inexperienced folks, doesn't mean that you can't still do some things like, you know, talk about some learning objectives. You know, by this point in a person's, okay, you're bringing somebody on on uh, as a new employee, within six months, we, we expect that they're going to learn these types of things, right? You could have some learning objectives. You could then say, here's some ways in which that on-the-job training could work to help address those objectives. And then coaching your supervisors and and managers, other people on, what does that look like? How do you do this well with regard to your specific area in the organization? Right. Uh, another place you can formalize for on-the-job training and improve it is having a robust onboarding. Mm. So... You know, so after they get their employee badge, they know how to do their time card, They all that stuff. They've cleared HR. They've started the first day of work. You don't want to overload them with everything at once. So, you know, you might have a schedule for them. Hey, on week three, somebody that knows how to train these items are going to teach them skill X, mm -hmm. right? And then maybe they get two to three weeks to execute and develop proficiency at skill X. And week six, we're going to do ski skill Y, right? You know, these kinds of things, having a robust onboarding with a tiered approach and and you're not throwing all the knowledge at them at one time, you know, that could be really helpful. And I think having an integrated approach, we talked about this earlier, but having this integrated approach where it's like, here are the things that we want people to know in this specific role or job. And here are some different ways in which they can learn that. Some of that might be on the job. Some of that might be through mentoring, coaching, other relationships. And some of it might be through formal education and training that the organization provides or facilitates. So for example, let's say someone needs to, to learn, you know, a certain set of knowledge and skills. Maybe they go through, you know, some introductory classroom training. Then you have a specific uh, way in which you help to support people to do the on-the-job training after that formal piece, right? Going directly into that transfer of training into the workplace. Then maybe there's kind of an advanced level where maybe they go get a little bit more uh, training formally, come back to the job and have more on the job training that that is synchronized. Right. That and that is coordinated and, and, and actually follows on logically with the formal stuff, because one of the worst things is when you have formal training in the workplace that the organization invests a lot of money and time into. And people go through it and then they go back to the job and they have a bunch of experienced people who are like, yeah. Good. We don't do any of it, anything that way. Right. Right. That that's that's just going to kill the value in that training. And maybe the training was garbage, but if it's good training, then it should be connected with how your organization actually operates. You know, I saw that so much, you know, when a basic training and when I was at officers candidacy school and all that stuff, I'd say, well, what about this? What? About, oh, wait till you get to your unit. Wait till you get to your unit. Wait till you get to your unit. And I'm like, well, well, shoot, guys, why don't I just start? At the unit, then, you know, what, what are we doing here in training? You had asked that. 
But another piece that can be good, especially if you have highly technical type roles and proficiency, is something that cut, that I take from the army was the they have a, something called the expert infantry badge, mm-hmm. and this is a competition to actually show the high quality of your proficiency. So you could have like an expert journeyman in your organization, especially if you're in a manufacturing technical item. If you're writing code, you know, you could have certain quality standards of code um, and more, you know, because people can get a base level certificate generally. But I don't see a whole lot of organizations setting up and they say, hey, we want operational excellence. Well, have something that people can compete can compete for to display their operational excellence. So you're not just honing the newbies or the mid-levels with on-the-job mm-hmm. training. You're also challenging and honing the, you know, the sharp pointy part of your stick, so to speak. Awesome. So those are some different ideas around how you can make your on-the-job training better, which I think should be the real focus of, you know, this conversation around the 70-20-10 rule and so forth is about, hey, infor- informal training matters. So does formal training. Let's make sure both are awesome. And here's some different things you can do to make your OJT better. So we're going to move on and we're going to talk about some implications now for people, leaders, and organizations. But first, we just want to say, you know, we are so happy about our literal, literally worldwide audience that we have for the Indigo podcast. Thank you so much for all of that. We continue to grow organically. And the way that that happens is through you out there telling your friend, hey, listen to this. If you come across an episode that maybe you think is relevant for a certain person in your organization or someone in your network, share it with them. Post stuff on social media, right? Because we post on social media, but it it means a lot more, I think, when it comes from a listener saying, hey, this is a good podcast um, and you should listen to it. We really want to continue to expand our audience that way. Awesome. Yeah. And we're not the best at social media. We just we do too much reading. So <laughs> those of you that know, help us out. So anyway, imp- implications for people, right? The first thing is if you are receiving, so if you're an individual in an organization and you're receiving some on-the-job training, look for opportunities to formalize uh, that training. So, it, and especially if that training you're getting isn't the best, this is a chance you can kind of, Make a name for yourself within an organization by saying, hey, you know what? I got this. I think we can make the onboarding a little bit better by doing X, Y, or Z. Right. And, uh, you know, formalizing that that informal piece doesn't mean take it out of the context of the job, put it in a classroom necessarily, and make it boring and awful. That's not what we're saying. It doesn't mean that it needs to get, you know, a bunch of PowerPoint. <laughs> people hate training. It's because they've just been to so much bad training. That's why it's right. important to take care with this stuff. Yeah, but you could imagine making that on-the-job training experience better by putting some standards in place, by putting some uh, elements of learning objectives and design into that experience. Right, and then the whole thing of ask about outcomes or objectives from the training you're receiving. Mm. So if you're new on the job and you're about to go, just be like, hey, I just want to, before we get started, what should I be able to do at the end of this? Uh, this will help you kind of cut through the noise and focus on the critical aspects of the stuff that you're learning. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, you know, I think another thing that individual contributors can do is also provide feedback about the on-the-job training that they're experiencing to the people that matter in the organization. 
Now, good organizations accept, ask for, and welcome this type of feedback. I'm so glad you went there. Right? So, um, <laughs> and you know, some, so here's the thing. If some somebody sit, sees something <laughs> bad in your organization, they say, hey, this isn't bad. Be quiet. Don't criticize. Yeah. Be pot. You know, th this idea of you've got to be listening, especially if you want training and knowledge transfer to happen within your organization. You have to support that and seek continuous improvement here. Right. You know, it reminds me of um, the some of the training that I went through once. So when when the Navy, the U.S. Navy uh, sends people overseas, for example, when we were sending a lot of people to Afghanistan and Iraq, we sent them for a couple of weeks to go through some army training with some army folks, uh, what we call Navy individual augmentee combat training. And so you spend some time, you know, shooting and learning about driving vehicles and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what's interesting and what's relevant here is that they would continually try to morph that program and that training um, by getting input from people who who actually had just recently um, gotten back from being in those areas, right? So they could they contact them and say, "Hey, you know, you got any training inputs for us? What's changed? What should we well, be doing the, differently?" Uh, Army Center for Lessons Learned, guys. No, no, this is okay. just this is all run out of. Um, uh, actually, it's run in coordination with the South Carolina National Guard down in uh, cool. near Fort, Fort Jackson. But yeah, cool. so I mean, so that's just an example. Get that feedback, make the OJT better. Okay, so what about leaders? What are some things that leaders should take away from this conversation, Chris? So you need to keep the best practices of on-the-job training, like the stuff that we talk from the articles that are in the show notes. Yeah. However, when you're delving into topics like leadership, management, et cetera, those kinds of items, this is, this is stuff that, you know, how to build a widget in your org, you should know that stone cold, right? Mm -hmm. And be able to train that. But when you're developing your managers, your leaders, your executives um, on management skills, team leading skills, you're going to have to go for expertise outside your organization. And you should, because I seldom, seldom, seldom see best practices within organizations in regards to these topics. And the cool thing is, is that there is evidence-based practice. Um, for instance, on meetings, Stephen Rogelberg's book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, um, that is, he's the global expert on meetings research. Uh, I mean, and he published a practical, easy-to-use book. Go for those kind of things. If Don't go buy the leadership stuff from people touting 70-20 rules and, and stuff like that. But go look for the evidence-based stuff there for those, the places where you need expertise outside of your organization for that kind of stuff. Yeah. And all that being said, be on the lookout for the My Little Pony model of leadership that we will have <laughs> for, for coming <laughs> at some point, specifically targeted to the jack wagons and numbskulls of the world. Um, so another thing is, you know, don't ignore formal training. You know, this over-reliance on the idea of the 70-20-10 rule is harmful for a variety of reasons, but it could be particularly harmful because it could cause you to think, well, this formal stuff doesn't really matter. We don't need it. It's only 10% about how people learn anyway. So let's not do it. Let's not invest in it. Okay. So if it's well-designed and it's reinforced, then you actually can get it. And it's integrated with all your other types of training. You're on the job, your relationships, all that kind of stuff. Then you can and will have some good transfer of training back to the workplace. So good formal training is still important. It's got to be good though. Yeah, you can't just eat food. You also need water, right? Even if it's a smaller portion, doesn't mean that it's not absolutely vital to sustaining organizational life, right? Yep. Um, so, yeah. 
So this stuff is easier on the physical individual training. So you might pay, you know, a little bit of attention on that. But like we said, leadership and that kind of stuff, behavioral skills, team management, that, those are more challenging. And so you should spend, you know, if we want to talk about percentages of times or rules, you should maybe spend a little bit more time focused on those aspects of your training curriculum. Yeah. And, and also just providing that time, space, and structure for passing on the skills and knowledge training, helping people to um, really take those things back to the workplace. If you have a culture that is inhospitable to formal training such that, you know, no one believes anything that comes out of formal training. Maybe because form- you had such bad training, nobody exactly. wants to sit yeah. through it again. Probably that's why, because <laughs> you had bad training, created all this cynicism. Then you've got to work to try to change that culture by having better training that is really connected with the job and then is reinforced. All right. So organizations, some implications here. Um, you know, first thing, you know, have a system of formal knowledge and leadership training in place, right? And that you can actually assess and have it be based on some sort of competency model. If you have one, um, some sort of evidence that, and, and use that as a, as a framework for your, for your leadership and development program, be systematic about this, right? Make sure that you have that integrated approach of on the job relationships, mentoring, coaching, and formal education uh, so that you can really maximize the learning and development of your people. Yeah. And watch out for managers. You need to have a way to assess the people because on the job training happens all over the place. The quality of your managers. Now, lots of times places, orgs will grow up. They just say, well, this guy's really good at his job. Let's make him a manager. Well, is that guy good at evaluating employees' performance, holding meetings, you know, defining mission and goals? Maybe not. But one of the things I like to see leaderships be evaluated as part of their annual review is on their competency in training others and developing Mm -hmm. skill. And so, which means, well, one, if you don't have a formalized program in place that you can assess how it's doing, you can't then also assess the teaching capabilities of your management. Yeah. And I think that leads us into this next idea, which is having a robust train the trainer program. So the people who are supposed to be imparting this informal knowledge and skill within your organization or formally, they need to have some abilities to impart that, right? So have a good program for making sure that anyone out there, um, you know, your managers, your supervisors, people who are kind of formally designated as being trainers in your organization, for sure, make sure that they have the, the knowledge and skills themselves to be able to appropriately uh, educate the rest of the workforce. Yeah, don't set these guys like, okay, go be good trainers. Oh, we evaluated. You stink. Sorry, we didn't set you up for success here. <laughs> you know, don't that don't be a numbskull and do that to your leaders, right? That's stinking thinking. Yeah, but make sure that they are being evaluated on how they bring up and develop their teams and staff. And and that comes in your culture and climate. Mm-hmm. And it should support reward and you know, expect that people will seek and give information. Um, so that's mentoring and coaching. And that doesn't have to be from a line manager to a sub employee. That can be peer to peer mentoring and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, also, just this is a continual theme here on the Indigo podcast, but ensure that your perspectives, your systems, what you're trying to do are based in evidence, that there's good research support for them, that they, they build on what we know. 
uh, in terms of how organizations work, how your particular job or function works. And be hairy, be, be very wary or handle with care those ones that maybe won't share their, their evidence or um, don't really have a whole lot of evidence behind them. There's a lot of programs out there like that. So if you're evaluating potentially you know, some program or something you're bringing into your organization, ask those hard questions to get at the truth about it. Yeah. One of the programs I think that's really big is the Strength Finders program. Now, the payment processing company has built a software platform around them and strength finders. And actually there's some good stuff about that software platform and how you evaluate people and how that tears with the goals of the business and all that kind of stuff. But when you need to handle it with care, because when you say, well, what evidence do we have that the strength finders lens or model works? Oh no, that's our secret sausage. So maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but that, you know, those are kind of the things, this isn't just, um, lay guy in a van that look, you know, rusted out van pulling up in a nice suit and trying to sell you stuff. There's some very large, large companies doing this stuff. So just make sure you got your thinking cap on. That's great. You also wanted to, you know, check in perhaps with some knowledge management professionals on how to document these items and, you know, um, take a practical approach to this entire idea of how you structure training in your organization. You still got to get the work done, um, but having a more nuanced view and an integrated view across these different elements of the informal training, the relationships piece, as well as the formal uh, education and training is probably your best bet. Right. And learning from your people, right? So if you're doing all that analysis, letting your people be a big part of that process and even, so let's say you already have something in flight, right? Just a word of encouragement here. Something's already in flight. Or you just launch something and it's, you know, it's terrible. You're starting, okay, we'll get feedback. Oh my gosh, everybody hates my training. Good. That's your first step on a journey to actually getting things calibrated um, to where they need to be. Sure. So today on the Indigo podcast, we talked about on-the-job training. We talked about this idea of the 70-20-10 rule and we reviewed the evidence for it. We talked about maximizing the value of on-the-job training, and we talked about some implications for people, leaders, and organizations. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.